Thanks for joining us on Beyond the Sermon, the podcast of First Methodist Church in Collingswood, New Jersey. Our goal is not only to share our sermons, but to go beyond the sermon in conversation about what we're learning and what God is doing in our lives and in our community. This sermon comes from our 2023 Lent sermon series, Seven Deadly Sins, The Power of God to Move Us from Death to New Life. You can find more information about our church at fumccollingswood.org. Thanks for listening. Well, this uh, season of Lent, these last past six weeks, we've been looking at the seven deadly sins. Anyone else tired of talking about sin? I, I kind of am. Um, ready to, to look at some, some good news, some good news, although there's been plenty of good news along the way. Uh, but we've been looking at these seven deadly sins, and we've looked at envy and gluttony and sloth and greed and wrath, and last week we talked about lust, and we've been looking at these sins or these vices because they're matters of our hearts. And as we've looked at the Sermon on the Mountain, what Jesus has been saying to us there, he's made it very clear that these things matter because our hearts matter. And Jesus is trying to shift our perspective, shift our focus from these outward behaviors and attitudes that we commonly think of when we think of sin to these issues of our heart and these motivations that that get down and put roots down into our hearts. And so today we're going to look at the final of these seven deadly sins, which interestingly enough, hasn't always been included in the list of the seven deadly sins because uh, this sin has sometimes been thought of as the root from which all these other sins kind of manifest themselves. Or we could think of it as the, root, the trunk of a tree. The trunk of a tree and all the seven deadly sins is the branches coming out from, those, uh, from that trunk. Uh, but today, we're looking at the sin of pride. And, and when pride hasn't been included in the list of the seven, uh, vainglory is the one that has most often taken its place. How many of you have ever heard vainglory? It's not a couple of you, a couple of you, but it's not a real common one, not uh, something we throw around in our normal conversations. Uh, so to help us understand a little bit of the, the subtle differences there, we can think of pride as kind of wanting to be the best, right? The, the preeminent, the greatest. It wants to be recognized. Meanwhile, vainglory just wants the glory, just wants the applause, no matter how it gets it. It wants to be the center of attention, even if the reason that it's getting the attention isn't necessarily a good reason. It kind of goes along with that idea that there's no bad press, right? Uh, but when we take these two ideas together, we're talking about that desire to be number one and also that, that wanting to be recognized, that wanting to, to gain the attention for the things that we do. But at its root, I tend to think of pride as the idea that I know best. I know best. Or a little bit different, I can make myself happy. Right? And you can see how all the other sins 
come from that place of thinking that I know best. And so we can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden before Eve ever took hold of that forbidden fruit, right? The idea that we could be like God. That's what the serpent told them. You can be like God. It's, it's pride. It's pride to think that we can be in the place of God. And so before Eve ever took hold of that forbidden piece of fruit, pride had already taken hold in their hearts. As the saying goes, pride comes before the fall. Pride, like each of these seven deadly sins in their own way, puts myself right in the center of everything, right in the center of my life and my attention. So how do we talk about pride? If, if it's clear, even in just this introduction, that, that pride is a sin, we're gonna get into that a little bit more later, but how do we talk about pride as a sin? In the midst of an American cultural context that elevates things like pride, right? We're proud to be an American. We've got a song that says that, right? I'm proud to be an American. We're taught even from a young age to take pride in our work, right? In the things that we do. We should be proud of those things, we talk about successful people as being driven and purposeful. We have rallies and parades for different groups that are proud of their identity. Psychology says that happiness begins with our self-esteem, our self-respect, our self-confidence. Where do we draw the line? Right? Where do we draw the line between a healthy concept of pride and self-esteem and an unhealthy sense of pride? Where do, where do we draw the line between a good sense of who we are and arrogance or conceit, vanity, selfishness, self-centeredness? When it all comes down to it, it when it all comes down to it, is pride okay at any level? Martin Luther, who was uh, one of the great reformers back in the, the 16th century, he defined sin itself as homo incravatus in se, a person turned in on themselves. A person turned in on themselves. That is, sin is selfishness. It's self-centeredness. It's self-interest. At its core, this idea of pride and sin is the elevation of the self. And I don't know about your experience, but I've found when someone tries to elevate themselves, they often do it by trying to put down others. And so pride results in a separation 
between us and the people around us. But it also results in a separation between us and God. Right? C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity that a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Did you catch that? As long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And so when we focus ourselves looking down on others, looking down on those around us, it's hard to see God. And so pride results in a separation between us and others and us and God. Jesus didn't have too much trouble talking about pride as a sin himself. If you were to turn to Matthew chapter six, which is right in the middle of uh, the Sermon on the Mount that we've been looking at during this series on the seven deadly sins, you'd hear these words from Jesus in Matthew chapter six, verse one. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. But it's not just our giving. In verse five, he continues, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your father who is unseen then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. But he continues. Verse 16, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their face to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received your reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus is saying it doesn't matter how, or it doesn't matter that you're doing these good things like giving and praying and fasting if you're doing it for the purpose of other people seeing it. You're missing the point. The recognition that pride longs for, the recognition that pride looks for is its own reward. But ultimately, it's an empty reward. You see, if we do good things for the sake of other people seeing us do good things, the motivation in our heart is wrong. And doing the wrong, nope, doing the right thing for the wrong reason is almost as bad as doing the wrong thing itself. So Jesus 
is encouraging us. He's admonishing us to pray and give and fast and whatever else we're doing that he calls our righteous acts because we're living in relationship with him, because we're living as part of his kingdom and we're trying to become like him. It's not about doing all those things for show. It's not about doing it for other people. He tells us all throughout this passage of scripture that God, who is unseen, will reward what we do in secret. But when Jesus was entering into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, it's the passage that Jeremy read for us this morning, what we've come to know as the triumphal entry, he got some attention, didn't he? And in some ways, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem that day mirrored the way that a conquering Roman general would enter into the city. But in other ways, it completely flipped it on its head. You see, when a Roman uh, general paraded into a city to celebrate their triumph over that city, the general would have ridden in on a war horse or in a chariot pulled by horses and they would have paraded captives before them naked and ashamed. That very same week, Pontius Pilate would have made a show of entering into Jerusalem because the Romans knew that if there was going to be trouble in Jerusalem, it was probably going to happen around the Passover, right? Jews were coming from all over the nation of Israel to celebrate together to remember what God had done in restoring his people, in rescuing them from their slavery and oppression in Egypt. And there was a longing in them to see God do it again, to throw off the shackles of the Romans and deliver them so that they could be the people of God again. And so they were looking for this one who would come and rescue them the one who would come and be the savior, who would come in and fight the the Romans, just like Judas Maccabeus had done about 200 years before this. He came in, he threw off the oppressors and the people rejoiced and they welcomed him in, waving palm branches and rejoicing in what God had done and they were looking for God to do it again. But Jesus doesn't do any of that. He doesn't come in in a chariot. He doesn't come into Jerusalem riding a magnificent war horse. He comes in riding a donkey, a lowly animal, a beast of burden, uh, the the kind of animal that you'd use on your farm, not the kind of... of, uh, animal that would signify triumph. But he also did it because all along the way, Jesus was trying to point to what God 
was doing. And so in Zechariah 9, chapter 9, it had been prophesied. He, uh, the prophet wrote, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that's the same passage that Matthew referenced. Your king is coming. But he's not a king who looked like the kings of this world. And and the people who were going before him in this procession weren't captives who had been defeated and humiliated. It was followers who were joyfully and willfully choosing to go with Jesus. And these people are crying out, Hosanna, save us. It was a term that originally was a cry to God to send the deliverer, to send uh, a rescuer. But it had become a phrase of praise and worship and adoration to God for what he had done. So they're crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Well, who was the son of David? That was supposed to be the Messiah, the one who would come, the anointed one who would come and restore the people of Israel. It was a title only for that Messiah. You see, the people who were going with Jesus on that first Palm Sunday, they recognized that this Jesus wasn't just another rabbi and he wasn't just a prophet like they were used to prophets coming. So they cried out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Lord here wasn't Caesar. It wasn't the Roman emperor who demanded to be called the Lord, who called himself the son of God. It was Jesus, carpenter, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. So they laid their cloaks before him. They they took the palm branches and laid them down on the road. They waved them in the air, making a way for this king who is entering Jerusalem. But through all this, Jesus was showing that the way of the kingdom of God isn't like the kingdoms of the world. It's not about pride and exaltation and humiliating others and pushing others down so that we can rise to the top. It's about humility. It's about taking the low seat. You see, Jesus' goal wasn't to receive the glory himself. He didn't want the recognition for himself. He wanted to glorify the Father. And so everything he did all along the way, even this decision to enter into Jerusalem in this way, wasn't to draw attention to himself, but to point to the God who saves. That had been his goal from the very beginning. And so Paul wrote, in the book of Philippians chapter two, beginning in verse five. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, 
who being in the very nature God didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Jesus, who was the word of God, the word of God who was with God and was God from the very beginning to use John's words, he was willing to let go of all of that. He was willing to empty himself of all the rights and all the privileges of his being God to put on our humanity with all of its weaknesses, with all of its limitations. He became one of the created ones. The God in whose image we are made took on the image and the likeness of humanity so that we could be redeemed and reconciled to God. He didn't come to be served and to be exalted. He came to be the servant, to give his life away for us. And not just in some nice, poetic, figurative kind of way, but in dying an ugly and torturous death on a Roman cross. An execution reserved specifically for those who were being made an example of. They put Jesus up on a cross and said, this is what we do to rebels. But Paul is encouraging us. He's telling us this is the kind of mindset that we're called to adopt. A mindset that looks not to our own interest, not to elevating ourselves, not to putting ourselves in the middle of everything, but a mindset that looks to the interests of others. A mindset that's willing to lay down our rights, willing to lay down our privileges for the sake of others coming to know God. A mindset that's willing to be made nothing so that God can be made great. A mindset that's willing to be mocked and scorned because it's not about us. And listen, it's hard, right? I'm not gonna stand here and tell you it's easy. It's hard to choose humility when everyone else is flaunting their pride. It's hard to take the low seat at the table while someone less deserving than, or who thinks they're, someone we think is less deserving elevates themselves. It's hard to be disliked. It's hard to be mocked. It's hard to be scorned because the way we're living doesn't line up with the way of life in the kingdom in which we are living because we belong to a different kingdom. But by the power of God's spirit, we can live a life that looks like Jesus. A life that our goal is to point to Jesus always 
only pointing to Jesus. We can only do it by dying to ourselves, by dying to our pride, taking ourselves out of the center, taking ourselves off the throne of our lives and putting Jesus there. And so this morning, we're going to come to the table, the Lord's table. We're going to come to the table to reflect on what God has done on our behalf in Christ's sacrifice and his suffering, his passion, these things that we remember during this holy week. We're going to come to choose again to put Jesus at the center of it all as essential to our lives as the daily bread that we need to survive. We're going to come to the table recognizing that we bring nothing to the table but our pride and our sin and our self. But still we're welcomed to receive his very life into our life. And we come admitting that we must become less so that Jesus can become greater.